here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Dr. Wright, how are you? Um, rushed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you. Been in back-to-back meetings since this morning, and how are you? I'm doing. You look great. Well, I had to dress up. I had to put makeup and stuff on for this last appointment. Yeah, no, you look great. And I, I'm sorry, Doctor Bo, you look great too. Make sure. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I like that. I, I'm saying right now, make sure. Well, that's right. When you came in, and just so you know, Doctor, you know, Doctor Bo didn't have no power, so we was actually was we was trying to figure out why in Texas. And you know, Dr. Bo, actually, on a very, very serious note, can you actually start with that? Because people maybe don't know all what happened with the ice storms and the mm. power going out. And just for real, we, we know that we lost some babies in that situation. It was ugly. And then we had folks trying to get to Cancun. So we even got, even got, and we, you know, we even got ugly in that process. But <laughs> tell folks how all that has connected to what's going on right now. Yeah, you, you know, uh, living down in the Gulf Coast and living in Texas, we used to prepare for disasters uh, June through November. That's hurricane season, but not anymore. We have to, uh, winter storm Uri hit us in February of 2021. 20, uh, so that means it's year round. And from February up until now, we've had a few rolling blackouts. We've had some power outages. And, and uh, when... Uh, uh, tropical storm Nicholas hit. I lost power then. Mm. So so when we, and 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 today it, you know I lost power for about uh, forty minutes. So um, it's unstable. The grid is unstable, uh, and the fact that uh, we have policies that are in place that that somehow uh, reward incompetence, and and under the guise of well we are. We've deregulated, and therefore, it's open market. It's a free market, whatever. Uh, it's it's a mess. That's what it is. And and when when the grids go down, the p- people lose power. Uh, it disproportionately impacts uh, poor people and people who have underlying health conditions. When the power goes off, families uh, and households that uh, have uh, mo- multiple generational. Um, individuals in, individuals in the households, and if there are individuals with with uh, health conditions that have to be on a uh, medical device that uses electricity, uh, they're up the creek, and we know which one. And mm. whether it's uh, dialysis or a breathing machine or other kinds of electrical devices, it creates a lot of problems. And and that's what we're experiencing now. This is we talk about. Uh, environmental justice and climate justice and energy justice. Th- these are not sexy topics. This is about life and death. And again, it's uh, it hits, you know, the most vulnerable population the hardest. You know, I can, you know, I can in, in my house, I can do without lights three, four days. But 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 uh, but in other communities where there's no lights, no water, uh, no transportation, no food, uh, no access to the kinds of resources that can you know, go 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 to the bank and and ATM and get money and and go to restaurants, et cetera. That's a that's a non-starter for a lot of folks, and it's mm. it's getting worse. It's getting worse. I see it getting worse. Yeah. Well, let me start off this conversation by saying that if if you've been listening, you probably heard some of the 
the familiar banter. You probably heard us talking like we know one another because we do in a very, very close way. Um, as you, Dr. Robert Bullard and Dr. Beverly Wright, are not only are there the preeminent leaders and scholars on issues regarding climate justice and environmental justice and matters of climate change, but they are folks who have seen me. So you get a little little joke. You see me literally grow um, in many cases. Uh, Dr. Bullard has seen me grow since I was Rev, and Dr. Wright has seen me grow since I was Lynn. So you may see, you may hear her every once in a while slip up and call me Lynn. You heard her mention my father earlier. My dad was actually in the uh, 68 Olympics. My parents came from Trinidad and he was a track star. And then he went, him and my mom went to Grambling. Uh, I think it was State College back then, but Grambling GSU. Just college. Grambling yeah. College. Yeah, Grambling State University. Mm-hmm. And so obviously being there, um, then, you know, um, being two young uh, newlyweds from Trinidad, uh, they found some more time to do than study because they had me. <laughs> so they, they obviously found something else to do besides read books. <laughs> and so there I was uh, in, that, in that regard and in, in an amazing way, which we see on, you know, you're going to hear more about this, about why black colleges are so important. In that aspect, uh, me being a baby um, on a black college campus, the students and Dr. Wright at that time, Dr. Beverly, um, and I don't know what her, I guess what her, I guess her, her, her name was back then, I guess. I've always just known her as, as, as Aunt Beverly and then moving forward. But mm-hmm. in, in that process, you know, would, would, would raise me. And so she was, she was one of the crew. She's one of the main crew. And so some of y'all know, some of y'all don't know this too. I, I wear hats, but I have bright, not bright as it used to be, but it's still pretty red. Uh, Dr. Wright said it was bright, bright. It was brick red. She said it was a brickhead. She said that brickhead baby. Um, and so that, so that, so I, I just want you to know. And so this is a conversation here where it would be the same. And I want you to have that feeling like we would have this conversation. It was sitting around in Louisiana or in Texas, drinking our tea and, and talking about what we need for the liberation of our people. We take that. That has been passed on. If nothing else is important, it, it boils down to how we deal with the liberation of our people. And in this specific conversation, it really gets into petrochemicals and what that is. So I'm, I'm going to start there. And Dr. Wright, and uh, I'm going to start with you on this, on this, and uh, what are petrochemicals? The folks can know. And then folks know this is the beginning of a whole series. And, and so you're, 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 in essence, the first voice they're going to hear on this. And then I, I'm the same question for you, Dr. Bullard, but what are petrochemicals? What are petrochemicals? Is that yes. your question? That's the, yeah, that's the lead off. Well, petrochemicals absolutely, absolutely represents one of the major substances that's causing climate change. I can start there. Hmm. It's, it, petrochemicals come from oil. And I just happened to live in a state where not only did we have oil, we had the, the, the particular type of crude that they thought was great for making gasoline and other oil products. But we also had the situation of uh, slavery, which led to plantations and those plantations brought with it the perfect, um, I guess, structure for the production of oil and the distribution of oil through the through the um, along the Mississippi River, 
So we generally say that um, oil was called black gold. Mm. And back in those days, it, it did a lot uh, for a whole lot of people. But at that time, no one was dealing with the ramifications of the processing of oil. And so you have Louisiana that is now, um, what, an 85-mile stretch of land between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that produces, that has 136 petrochemical plants that has now grown to 152. Bob, I don't know if you knew that. Mm. We have more plants since the uh, um, since Republican administration with the governor that just invited every possible uh, dirty, nasty, polluting facility to the state. And uh, we're still poor. We're still one of the poorest states in the union with all of this gas, with all of this oil. And we're, we're second only to, um, we have almost as much natural gas if, as Texas does. In fact, some people say we have more natural gas. So we have oil, we have natural gas. None of it has benefited the people who live here. And certainly the earth is the, the our planet is suffering the most. It's uh, contributed to um, our the earth becoming a, a hostile environment for human beings. So when you ask me what oil is, you know, there's always, you have that coin, the good side and the bad side. It led to a lot of, um, um, uh, I, I'd say um, a lot of conveniences for human beings that we thought was progress, that we're finding out now that there are consequences for, for the misuse and the overuse, overdrilling over everything in excess that we did to produce this modern society that we live in. Um, and so now everything is threatened uh, because of the way we dealt with um, petrochemicals and other chemicals um, is throwing off the balance of the earth. And we are now seeing ice storms in Texas, something no one ever thought of, flooding mm -hmm. in Florida. And of course, uh, hurricanes, we've always expected that in the Gulf Coast, but not at this magnitude, always hurricanes and storms that we could survive from. Mm. Um, when you, when someone asked me what, is what are petrochemicals? You know, I would send them to the chemical manufacturing organization. They'll have a list of all of the products that they produce from, um, from oil um, and the chemical makeup of what it is. But I can tell you what it's done. And we are reaping the negative ramifications of the overuse of oil. You add to that, you know, the racial dynamics of the oil industry and how, in fact, it has been created in a way that when they finally realize the dangers of living with these chemical plants, they immediately relocated white people and left us there to languish next to these facilities, causing extremely high death rates, cancer rates, and so on. So Louisiana has the highest cancer rate in the nation. White people have a cancer rate that's 30% higher than the national average, and Black people have a cancer rate 30% higher than white people. So you add that up and see where that leaves us. We have an extremely high cancer rate, and our legislators and senators took offense when Biden called Cancer Alley Cancer Alley. 
So they don't talk, they don't get offended by what's happening to its people from these chemicals, but they get, get um, insulted if you call it what it is. So you can't tell the truth in Louisiana. And as a cancer survivor, I have no problems repeating, I live in Cancer Alley. Hmm. I, 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 I am a witness to um, cancer and what, what cancer can do to you. Not, I was lucky, blessed, survived, but there's so many people who did not. My brother died of cancer, you know, um, and I have many friends who died of cancer, breast cancer in particular. But pancreatic cancer seems to be running rampant uh, in my neighborhood, losing girlfriends as well. So I live in Cancer Alley. It is Cancer Alley because of petrochemicals. I'll end there. No, no. Actually, I'm a, I'm a Dr. Bullard. I'm a, I want you to answer the same question, but I, I, I want to ask a follow-up to Dr. Wright. And I actually want you to then hop into this question as well. Dr. Dr. Bullard, I'm coming to you with that same question with our petrochemicals. But Dr. Wright, can, I have to ask you this question here as you're talking. Um, and we're going to get more into this in this conversation. But maybe you can help me. With, with what you just said about petrochemicals and what it does to us, why does it seem that a lot of black people are so quiet while we die publicly? Um, well, I'll say this. It goes back to a question that I would hear old people in my neighborhood ask all the time. And I didn't understand it as a child. They would say, what's wrong with black people? You know, we would do things that just seemed unnatural, not responding in a way that people would normally act. And I would say to you that it is cultural conditioning based on a racist system that is entrenched not only in our culture, but also in what we teach. Look at all of the statues of generals who weren't even good generals, making, making up history. So when you live in um, a society that, first of all, continued slavery or had slavery for hundreds of years and then continued segregation and racist rhetoric, um, then mixed within that culture is something that tells you to be quiet. It's not safe to, to speak up. I could give you an example of what happened in St. John Parish, where many people there died of COVID once we made the, the connection between PM 2.5 and COVID-19 how they come together in such a way that we breathe it deeply into our lungs and our mortality rate is much higher and faster. We were dying faster than other people. But when reporters wanted to go down and talk to people about just that, most of the people said that they couldn't talk because they worked in the chemical plants and they could lose their jobs. So, you know, that is still going where people are being blackmailed. People feel threatened. If they speak out, it's always taken courage, if you know what I mean, to speak out. And we're still down south and a lot of those things still exist. So when you see people not speaking out, you wonder why they don't. 
a lot of it has to do with just that, the cultural conditioning of people and this idea that I need to keep my mouth shut so that I can keep my job. Uh, There's a lot of that still going on down here, but thank God there's still people who aren't threatening. So we talk. And the way that you get beyond that is through education and support of community members with information and with outside support to prop them up so that they can speak without having fear of reprisals that they cannot overcome. So it is year the year 2021. But if you look at everything that's happening in terms of the laws that, are, that, that they're trying to change, the cheating that they're doing to make certain that we can't vote, they're actually trying to take us back further than where we began when we started this fight. But these are really tough times um, in the South. And I just saw, yes, last night on Rachel Maddow, where the Democratic headquarters in Austin, Texas, was was attacked. They have it all on tape. And you could see it was a cowardly white man chasing, running, breaking windows like a kid, throwing a Molotov cocktail into the Democratic headquarters. People still uh, fear reprisals. And I would say that they are true feelings. It's not, they're not made up. Hmm. Dr. Bullard, same question. Uh, What are petrochemicals? Um, You can also add in what forms of petrochemicals. And then this last part, if petrochemicals are so deadly, so dangerous, why are we as a people so quiet when they're killing us publicly? Well, I, I agree with uh, Dr. Wright. I think the, the foundation of an economy that's based on oil and gas uh, is an economy that's based on um, uh, a production uh, that's always was known to be dangerous uh, in terms of the impact, the potential for explosion, uh, the emissions, et cetera. And even decades ago, uh, the climate impacts were known. Uh, but were kept uh, from the public by the companies. So, so you have a very powerful industry that has uh, a powerful lobby. They have very powerful communications um, apparatuses that can uh, do all kinds of spin. And the oil and gas industry uh, has a diversity problem. Uh, it 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 purports to. Uh, provide jobs for uh, communities and and good jobs, et cetera, high-paying jobs for communities where they're located. But if you dig deep uh, into the states where they're located and concentrate and concentrated, the communities that are the host communities, that is the communities and the neighborhoods that and residents that live closest to those plants, um, these companies, these industries have not brought about an economic renaissance. The, the, the externalities, the, the cost, uh, the, the negative impacts are localized. And the people who live across the fence don't get the jobs. Uh, they get the pollution and they get poverty. And as you move further and further out, that's where the benefits uh, are accrued. You drive 50 miles, 60 miles in, spend, spend eight hours and drive your 50 miles out. Uh, you get the good paying jobs, but you don't get the the negative uh, aspect of, of, of having to live across the fence from a refinery or a petrochemical plant 
other kind of plant that supports uh, those those uh, those facilities. And so, uh, since since there the powerful industries have their communication apparatus, they can uh, present this image that everybody is getting benefits from uh, these plants being located there. Mm. And as Dr. Wright said, if you look at, you know, um, Louisiana, for example, has, has a high concentration of chemical plants and its economy in, in a big way is, is built off of oil and gas. But if you look at the poverty rate, and particularly black poverty, uh, uh, that, that, that poverty rate in Louisiana um, is, uh, is, is not lower than the poverty rate black poverty rate in other places that don't have uh, chemical plants. As a matter of fact, in other places, the rate is lower. So, so we have to uh, break, break loose this, this um, uh, propagandizing of information and calling it facts and, and get to the real issue. The, there's also another form of intimidation. Intimidation from the standpoint of, of right now, States are passing laws, and particularly all producing states are passing laws uh, uh, to suppress uh, your right to um, uh, freely protest, assemble, and demonstrate against pipelines and other um, industries, oil and gas-dominated industries. So it's like the same forces that's passing these uh, uh, voter suppression uh, in states are also trying to suppress um, opposition and protests against oil and gas. Mm. Those are the kinds of larger systemic um, um, forces that are, that, are being, that are being pushed down on communities. And the other part is how money is spread and dirty money is being sent to some of our organizations. And I'm going to call names, but I won't call them issues. But some of our organizations have been around for many, many years, used to take that dirty money and keep quiet. Uh, it was not just, you know, you're talking oil and gas, you're talking coal. Uh, and, 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 and we used to, in the 90s, we had to call them out to say, well, well you can't speak for communities that are on the fence line that are, being, that are experiencing tremendous problems because your organization basically is taking all of that oil and gas money, that coal money. It was the same for that cigarette money. You know, they wouldn't talk about cigarettes and, and how our, our organizations are flooded with, with monies from the American uh, Tobacco Institute. We have to break loose from and break free from that money and from those donations. Otherwise, uh, we will never be free. Now, that's, that's my 30,000-foot analysis. But on the ground, you can see the asthma rate. Uh, the respiratory and other respiratory illnesses, the cancer, diabetes, uh, all, and other environmental uh, health disparities that are that are that are killing us, and COVID is making it uh, even worse. And it's and you can with technology we can uh, map all of that and put it and put it in beautiful maps and charts, but it's it's uh, it's ugly. It's an ugly picture, and and we need to uh, own up to the fact that we have to do more. And we have to speak out and speak up. It's just hmm. that simple. Let me ask you both this question. Because obviously, as I said earlier, you two are some of the most, you are, I mean, you're the preeminent, most respected 
on issues of environmental justice, issues of climate justice, um, your legacy on this work. I mean, there's literally going to be a Dr. Bob Bullard. There is a Dr. Bob Bullard Center <laughs> at Texas Southern. Um, and so, and then there's an amazing Deep South Center that Dr. Wright has done. There's so much and the HBCU conference. I can go on and on, on about so much y'all have done for our people. But y'all are very smart. And, and this conversation is meant to be uh, following up on what you just said, very open and very much transparent. So I want to start here, Dr. Wright and Dr. Bullard, again. I need you to follow right in, but this is where this goes. For what you just said there, for both of what you just said, um, let, let me take this back a second. That we, all who are speaking now, are black people. Our hue is a beautiful bronze or bronze or brown or black. That is who we are. We are, a, we are people of color right now having this conversation. And we know because of where we are, our, our legacy comes from those who were um, enslaved. Um, and we know in this process that they were brought to this, this land um, that was already preoccupied by our native and our indigenous sisters and brothers. And there's a history of oppression that goes along from the taking of the land from our native sisters and brothers, which has a strong connection actually in Louisiana and Texas. And then the enslavement of our people. But the continued oppression from Jim Crow to now what we're seeing, petrochemical plants, literally going back to and putting those plants on the places where the plantations used to sit. So how much, when y'all know how much y'all know, and, you know, and, you know, and just full disclosure, you know, both of y'all are advising, you know, which isn't a good thing, but it's real, the, the, the White House and, and, and that component. But how much, how much really can we trust this system to save our people from this system. And I'm just wondering, because if they're, they're literally doing these catastrophic health and environmental consequences on our people, what does that mean for us to trust the same system for our liberation? Dr. Wright? Oh, that's a loaded question. I don't think we've ever trusted this system to do, to liberate us from anything or to save us from anything. It's only come out of the struggle of our people. Um, and, you know, not just that, we've had people to die and mm. be murdered, you know, standing up for what was right for us. Um, you know, I, I've been thinking about this um, in another kind of way, just based upon what I see happening here. Um, I think over 20 years ago, we found out that Dow Chemical was already trying to find ways to green their facilities. They knew that it was coming. It's not like um, the petrochemical industry, the car manufacturers, any of these people did not know that what they were doing was affecting the climate, did not know that sooner or later they were going to have to trans, 
have this transformation from what they were doing to something else. They've been knowing that. They've kept it from us. And so what I see is this big transformation that we actually need done in this country will be done when these people find a way to control it. It's, it's all about their control of um, energy to maintain their profits and their powerful place within society. Hmm. Um, we have to be smart enough and figure out a strategy with this big shift being made uh, that we are taking the moral ground and demanding that our communities are not harmed. Um, I just saw where Ford Motor Company is investing billions in electric cars. You know, um, they see the change coming and they're trying to position themselves to be in that place. So if we look at government as being a place where maybe we can begin making certain that the transformation is an ethical and moral one, it is, is inclusive and doesn't harm people. Um, and we see everything that Biden has put forward for it on paper. It looks fantastic. But the moratorium was lifted for drilling in Louisiana. That's mm-hmm. things that he stopped. So everything we're pushing for, we have to recognize that there is there are literally millions. I call them Pinkerton men. Because I had Bob laughing about that. This is what we're fighting. The same Pinkerton men that had shotguns and killed people, they're now lawyers. And unscrupulous policy um, geniuses that work just as hard to make certain that while it looks like we're moving forward, we're putting every block in place so that you don't move forward. And we we knock off all competition. So you take a, a relatively small company like Entergy as in Entergy uh, utility company in Louisiana, I think you're in Mississippi and Texas, a little company like that. And what it has been able to do to destroy uh, the, 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 I'd say the community's confidence in our system, it's been able to block transmission of electricity uh, from the north to the south. It's almost like we're fighting a Confederate war. Trans- lines are owned by Entergy and they will not allow the transmission of electricity from the north. And they have used every, and and for that reason, our bills are higher and even our renewable energy bills are higher where we are because we can't make the connect. So what we need, how we make this change, I think is what we're all trying to figure out. That's the WeJack. So that there's some, I call it reparation for harms that have already been done. Making certain that that money goes where it's supposed to go. It's going to be difficult because you're putting money into a racist system, systemically racist. And so even though the the, um, resolution or the the goal or the bill, uh, as it's written, is not discriminatory. If you place it into a system that is, 
you can't get anything out of it but something else that, that ends up showing disparities for people who need it the most. That's our job as we see a, a big push for system change. The fight that's going on in Congress right now doesn't even make sense that one or two people could go against the will of the majority of people in this country. Getting mm-hmm. things like universal, um, um, not universal child care, what that would mean for uh, poor couples who have to work. And you have people who really and truly in the end would benefit from that, fighting against it, but they're not fighting against the program itself. They're fighting against the distribution of wealth. And they want to continue to have that distribution lean more towards what they want and their people than the rest of us. So it's a, it's, it's a, it, it is a struggle. I think we need to have more um, meetings of the mind in the way that we did when we started EJ. It started with people talking and then building that coalition and then getting strong enough to make demands. The same thing has to happen now. Although Biden has said all of these things, you can see there are people absolutely fighting to not allow any of this to happen. And the transformation from oil and gas in the chemical in, in cancer alley, you know, we've had one company to close shell, but it's being replaced by plastics hmm. or carbon capture sequestration. You know, our, our state is the first to ask for a permit to start burying carbon, not looking at the consequences of those things, that technology not working or an eruption or explosion or what it's really doing. So we're actually experiencing an unjust transition in Louisiana, a move from oil and gas to some extent to plastics and carbon capture sequestration and other untested non-scientific approaches for reducing carbon to allow them to continue doing what they're doing longer. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, the fight doesn't end, Rand. I mean, no, no, the fight, the fight doesn't. We know, we know what we have to do, um, um, and we have to get busy doing it. One thing that for certain I know has to change, and that's the Clean Air Act, because the Clean Air Act is why we keep fighting the same fight over and over again. Companies are legally poisoning us based on rules set by the Clean Air Act. Those rules are based on industry standards. They're not based on health standards. Until we get those standards to be related to health, we're fighting the same battle. And every battle we've won, as Bob would say, it has been a political win, not a legal one, because they are legally within their right to poison us because of the statues in the Clean Air Act. And... Um, you know, that's one of the big things that my center is going to tackle very soon, revisiting the Clean Air Act and getting some some uh, friction behind making the changes we need change in order to save our lives. In the- yeah, Dr. Wright and Dr. Bull, I need you to hop in here and I need to follow this up because and I told folks this was like a, a, a coffee table kitchen table type conversation. So, you know, and, and I'm going to be honest and, you know, you know, in this process, it, I don't know, Dr. Wright, 
and Dr. Bullard, it, it's it's hard for me to hear you talk about these folks are willfully poisoning our people, and we know it. And it's hard for me because other folks, we're sitting here, and to be clear, if you're listening right now, our goal is unified. We are unified to stop petrochemicals from polluting our communities. Full stop. That's what this conversation is about. But in this conversation, I can't, I just can't deal with the fact that we've had so many people who are dying. And it just seems like as we're talking about this, we are looking sometimes and I'm going to be very clear. If I'm complicit, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm going to be very clear, y'all. I think that, let me be serious. I'm trying to figure all of these pieces out so, so that we're in a position where if we are too comfortable with our oppressor, I don't, want, I don't want to give them, Dr. Bullard, I don't want to give them the intention that I'm, everything is honky-dory. I, they, they don't need to feel that way. And, and I'm just saying to you, how do we trust this system? And I mean, the, the, and Dr. Reichter said, the system that from the, the federal government to the state government to local government to the corporations to the green movement, how, when do we just say, listen, they're killing us. They're killing us. And it's a horrible death. They're putting chemicals in our community. They're putting them on former plantations. They're doing that in a way that is destroying our communities. And enough is enough. Dr. Bullock. Well, well, Rev, I think it's important uh, for listeners to understand that it has never been easy for Black people to uh, press for justice. And understanding that the way that this country was founded, free land, free labor, uh, free men, and free enterprise. And uh, free, free land, the land was not cheap. It was free, stolen. And the labor was not low, low wage. It was free slaves. And uh, free men, only men, white men with property could vote. And free enterprise, we know there's no such thing as free enterprise. There's no free lunch. Somebody's paying. When you understand those four principles, and then you apply that to a system that was built on uh, the idea that 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 some individuals, populations in this country had no rights. Uh, Dred Scott, 1856. Uh, a black man has no rights that any white man is bound to respect. That was the Supreme Court. Codified courts after courts after courts. And they come all the way up to Dred Scott, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson, that codified Jim Crow. Supreme Court decision, 1954, that said... Um, uh, uh, separate on equals on Constitution, 1964 Civil Rights Act that said everybody's supposed to be equal. We're still trying to get to that and justice for all, equality mm -hmm. and ever and rights and laws being applied equally across the board. In 1790, uh, the same year, the first census of the United States, uh, Ma Jack Moss founded Mossville before the this whole idea that. The country was really a country, and and the fact that uh, in terms of all the states and all everything being coast to coast, 
These black folks in Mossville survived slavery, Jim Crow segregation, uh, separate unequal. They survived all of that. But right now, Mossville is being threatened by chemical plants that's surrounding it and a, co and a company that built its, um, its, its, um, its resources and financing off of apartheid in South Africa. So, so you, you see the irony of, of a company that moves from South Africa and comes to Louisiana and Louisiana say, come on down. And they go mm. into Mossville and destroy that community, further destroy. That's how racism is so um, uh, permanent and pervasive that, that will destroy communities, will poison communities. And, and the laws that are, exist on the books will say, okay, uh, folks, you need more poison in your system for us to do anything. You're not poison enough with one plant. You got 15 plants. So that's the, that's the mentality that surrounds how communities get just so saturated and become these sacrifice zones. I wrote Dumping in Dixie in 1990, 30, 31 years ago. It's still happening right now in 2021, where, where in many cases, black communities are considered compatible land uses with poison. Mm. They're considered good places to put things that other people don't want. Put it there and you don't even get the jobs. You don't even get the tax benefits. You get poison, you get polluted, and you get poverty. Now, that's how toxic racism operates in America, and it operates the same way abroad in, the, in uh, less developed countries, in low-moderate-income low countries uh, of color. Now, that's some system that is ingrained. The same system that pushed poison into black communities it's the same system that's trying to take away the vote, mm. suppress the vote. It's, it's, that's the same system that says, no, we're going to keep um, Medicaid and Obamacare from being expanded in your state. And if you're poor and don't have health insurance, you're, you're, um, you're, you're, what you have to do is die. That's the kind of insensitivity that when you put it on a map, it's the same map. That's the... The, night, the 2021 map, in terms of the census, in terms of the African-American footprint, where we live and where we work, where we play, where we go to school, it's the 2021 map is the same map as the 1821 map, the Missouri Compromise that basically said, black people, you are a large part of the southern states. In some cases, blacks made up the majority of those states, but you are only going to be counted as three-fifths. Mm. Three-fifths of the person and for the representation, distribution of money and votes. That's what we're dealing with now. Our communities, black communities, are still not considered whole. We are still not considered, not, even though it's not legal, it's not codified, but we are considered less than when it comes to enforcing laws that will protect our health and protect our communities. Now, that's the reality that we're living in in 2021. And some people will say that's hyperbole, but it's it's not. Not when you read the read those reports and read the studies after study after study after study. And if you can't see it after COVID, uh, then you are blind. COVID was like a heat-seeking missile that went to the bullseye of the most vulnerable, the most polluted, the most underserved, 
the most at risk, the most marginalized. That's where you get those high uh, infection, high hospitalization, and high death rates. The science is, is very clear and it's very revealing. So all of us should be angry. We, we should be ready to mobilize and to change this system that is still built in structural inequality and systemic racism that generate these inequities. Now, that's the reality. Hmm. Hmm. So first, we we, we break into some solutions. And I told for we, we have real talk. And I told you, if you listen, I know you turned up the volume. Um, Dr. Bull, I got to come back to you after what you just said, because you just said so much. You know, the bottom line is simply, so, you know, how do we win? You know, if we're not even seen as human or deserving of rights, um, this kind of ideology from this country, which has not changed. And since this government and system codifies and allows for our communities to be poisoned, what is the route to our liberation in regards to petrochemicals and other forms of oppression? Why must we act now? Rev, I, I want to just say this, uh, and it, it sounds really crazy, but when I was a kid, um, Black people would always say, our key was the vote in education. Mm. Things that they felt would liberate us and get us to where we were. Voting, which you could not live in my mother's house or even be a friend of hers if you didn't vote. That's how important you know, voting was, and education. And guess what? It hasn't changed. And white folks realize that now. That's why they're pushing so hard to stop us from voting, because they recognize that if we get the vote and get people who represent us in positions of power to pass laws, to sit on the Supreme Court, to be governors and state legislators, we can change this country and make it fairer. I don't think we'll ever get it perfect, but we certainly can get it better than where it is. And what I'm finding is that a lot of our young people now are saying education isn't important. It's a waste of your time. It costs so much and all of these things. That's not true. And other people are saying, vote for what? What difference will it make? Well, we see that white people understand that voting makes a difference. That's why they're trying to suppress the vote. We could win right now. Everything that we wanted if our people voted, meaning people of color en masse voted, we outnumbered them. But suppress, suppression of the vote, lack of education and understanding, that's the tickets that they play to stay in power. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change from way back then. Voting is still one of the keys in a free democratic society. Your right to vote. And your education. They're still number one on my list. I, I agree. I, I'm not, well, you know, you're not going to get no disagreement with me. I mean, we, we have a campaign <laughs> on voting. Um, so, you know, you're, you're definitely going, I'm definitely going to agree on that. But, and this is, again, to you, to you both. This still goes back to, um, you know, how do we win, not just from the voting standpoint, which is a part, which is, a part of the process. What I'm talking about is since this government 
and these communities and folks are so complicit in our poisoning, you know, what 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 is our pathway to and and so Dr. Bill, let me ask you this, let me change it up a little bit. Actually. We we man, I want to say this in a way, and like I said, for those who are listening, I need you to understand that this is a, a very important conversation. Because I know that Dr. Wright and Dr. Bullard have seen our struggle for quite some time. And they have given everything. But I want to keep it real. I will tell you, and I'm going to speak for them, and so they don't got to say this. I have been torn at how so many of our leaders and elders, like Dr. Wright and Dr. Bullard, have given of themselves their lives for this work. And I have been torn because I have seen them do this work in a way in which they haven't been supported. I'm so happy recently they've been supported and they're getting support. And I'm so happy for that. But it's, to me, it's, 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 it's been too long for that. I agree but, with that. But the thing for me here is still in this process is that what I don't want to do, I do not want to, and I'm sure they understand this, create, as we are working to stop these destructive chemicals in our communities, I do not want the next generation to think that was the right way, that we had to go through. And we talked, I think last time we talked, we talked about Damu and many others and Cecil and maybe we had, we had a whole list of those who, who are no longer with us. Like that is not, that's what I'm trying to, I'm getting to. I'm saying that I don't want to pass on bad habits, Dr. Wright and Dr. Bullard, to young people. Young people are calling for liberation. They are saying simply, the putting up of these petrochemical plants are killing us and killing their future. There's no, and the government is moving too slow, and it's moving too slow. These big greens is moving too slow. The black folk who are working for the fossil fuel companies are complicit. And so all this is going on. When do we get to the point when, yes, we have to vote and we have to organize, but when do we get to the point that our conversation becomes about liberation and no longer about just going by and by in the sky? That's the part where they are saying, how do we win this so they no longer are being poisoned? Let, let me just put it this way, uh, Rev. Uh, every social movement that has been successful uh, in this country has had strong youth and student uh, components and organizations and that have, uh, that have pushed the envelope, that have called for more radical uh, transformative change and have put their bodies out in the streets and on the line. That's us in the 60s. Mm -hmm. We were fearless uh, and we were not afraid to go to jail. We're not afraid of getting expelled from school. We're not afraid to, or intimidated. Uh, and so uh, what young people are saying, uh, some of them are, are, are saying, as opposed to doing, uh, it's one thing to write a, uh, an article, a blog, or get on Facebook, but when you got to pre press the flesh and hit the streets and, and organize on the ground, that's, that's the mobilization and organizing There's no substitute. So... You you gotta uh, you gotta bring it, uh, and more more so than just saying it. And I think the 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 quest for justice is more like a race, uh, but it's not a sprint. It's more like a marathon relay. 
I know there's no such race uh, mm-hmm. if you were a track star. But you're, you're running 26.2 miles, and then you pass the baton to the next generation to run that 26.2. And you work hard to make sure that that handoff is a clean handoff. But you don't go, uh, after you run that leg, you don't go and sit on the sideline. You help that next person run that next leg, and then that next leg, and then that last uh, uh, anchor leg. That's when you get that kick right now. I think we're in that kick point where we have to press hard, fast, and furious to dismantle all of those systems that's, that's holding back progress and transforming and change. It's not just voting, but voting is an essential. It's not just education, but education is an essential. It's not just research and policy, all that's essential, but it's also getting people to understand and get to what's needed and that we have to bring all of us along and those who are less fortunate, who may not uh, understand how these different pieces connect in terms of a textbook, but they can tell you why is it that public transportation uh, can be a savior if it's good public transportation and getting to a job and getting to a hospital and getting to daycare and getting to self-sufficiency. So environmental justice, climate justice, economic justice, energy justice, education justice, reproductive justice, all these things are under attack so that we just can't work on climate and say, oh, I'll just work on climate. I don't work on affordable housing. I don't work on this thing. All of it is, in, is intertwined and, and interconnected. So we have to make sure that our organizations that are dealing with these issues understand they have to multitask. We can't have the luxury of just being a climate organization or uh, or a health organization. Everything is embedded in health. Everything is about human rights because when we talk about environment, it's where we live, work, play, worship, learn, as well as the physical and natural world. That's how our movement, the intergenerational movement, has to move fast and furious. I'm a boomer. Dr. Wright's a boomer. But right now, Gen Xers and millennials and younger, that's the, they're the majority of this country. Mm-hmm. And if we can educate, mobilize, and get them to understand their power, that, that, um, that submerged power, it's submerged right now because it has not been utilized to the point of, of getting things go, uh, done in a fast and furious way. But millennials and Gen Xers, they're coming into their own of all colors, and they have fewer wedge issues to keep them apart. That's when we're talking about that awakening, and racial justice has to be a driver, the, the driver behind all of this, because the reason why we have this um, um, somehow um, given black health and black communities this, this, this trade-off is, well, uh, we can just trade them off uh, because they're less than, they're not important. And, and we can just kind of like say, well, your health is not, not as important as the health over here. Let's put it over, put the bad stuff over here and give the parks, green space, mm-hmm. uh, bike trails, all the things that make communities healthy over there. We have to challenge that because the built environment right now and in industrial f- uh, facility siting and our, and our um, policies as it relates to climate, uh, we have to challenge the way that resources are allocated. Right now, as when we transition from oil and gas dominated industry to clean renewables, right now we have to make sure that that's just and equitable. Right now, black folks make up uh, 13% of the U.S. population, but we're only 
of clean energy. Now, that's the same, same format. We are underrepresented in oil and gas in terms of jobs. So we have to challenge the thinking that by just transitioning to clean, renewable energy, that somehow it's going to flow equally across the board. Wrong. We have to fight to make sure we talk about racial justice and equity and fairness across the board with the jobs and the businesses that our uh, Black-owned businesses can, can do that. And we have to fight for every step of the way for that money and for those investments. Yeah. I, I want to give you all this last question, and I want to thank you all for your time. And whew, This was a conversation. You know, this, is how, this, is how we, this is how we do it. it we, 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 <laughs> this is why folks tune in to this conversation because it gets, it get, we, get we get it going. And hopefully we're going to have, we need to have more of these in public arenas and, and just take us on the road. I think they would appreciate that. This is my last question. I actually want to give you the opportunity to say really what you want to say, but I'm going to give you a framework in, the la in this last question. So you can, say, you can wrap it up. The, 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 the question goes simply that our goal here is not only do we need to obviously stop petrochemicals, oil and gas, and, and those facilities in our communities, but we need to stop white supremacy. We need to stop the oppression, as Dr. Bullitt put it quite well, the, all the effects of injustice on our people. We need to work toward liberation. And so I just simply want to ask y'all, you know, you know, what is this, what, what, is, the, what is the future, what, what's your goal? And, and again, you can answer this how you want to answer. You can talk about your current work. This is your time to, to, to freestyle. But the one thing I do want to say, though, I would like for you to talk to young people because I think that this recording will be something that years from now, they're going to play back and they're going to look to you, Dr. Wright, and you, Dr. Bullard, as icons, literally as icons. I need that to sink in for a little bit too. And this is not about this current moment. But this moment when you can speak to a generation only through what you're about to say right now and about how we do everything to put them in power, how we get rid of the gatekeepers that keep them out of power, how we fight for a planet that can transition from fossil fuels to clean energy, and how we can stop petrochemicals. So, Dr. Wright, I'm going to just give this mic to you to speak to them anywhere you want to speak to them. Oh, well, I used to say that, you know, if I were the good Lord, I could answer all these questions very quickly because I would know everything. It's um, a difficult time. But I think that because my occupation was a college professor, I think it was one of the few occupations where every year the only person that got older was you. Is every year you had a new freshman class. If that uh, didn't did anything for me, it certainly helped me to appreciate the energy of youth and the the joy of it, and um, just always seeing a future that could be better. Because they come in with just amazing ideas. They're not jaded like we are, because we've been around a while and seen a lot of things not go right. Um, 
And I guess for me, my personal goal is to uh, transition my organization in a way that I bring young people in with new ideas, with those ideas, um, not reckless ideas, but new ideas um, that can move the envelope a little bit further. Every generation moves the envelope further. That's my personal goal. My personal goal is also to get the center endowed so that when young people come in and take over this work, they don't have to worry about keeping the doors open. They don't have to be um, divided in their efforts doing something that some philanthropic organization wants them to do that has nothing to do with our work on the ground, you know, saving our people, um, improving the quality of life for them, giving all of our people a sense of dignity and belonging and respect, all of the things that we do. Um, So endowing the center is another real goal that I have for the future as I try to transition to a younger staff moving forward, picking up the gavel. But this whole thing, and this is where I think that I'm probably more optimistic than some people. I just really believe that white supremacy as we see it is dying. It's not growing. It really is dying. And that's why the fight is so vicious for those who are left. It's difficult for a young person in this day and time with computers and all of these things, having classrooms, talking with people in China and all over the world, to not have great dissidents when they go out into the world and really meet people and and meet those people with all of the prejudices that they've been given in their own hometown. It forces them to make a choice. And I believe every year, the numbers of people who make the choice to hold on to white supremacy will decrease. White people know this. That's why they're fighting against critical race theory, as they call it. They don't want young people to know the truth. But try as they may, 90% of them will know the truth. And over at least 50% of them will make a different decision. That's just the way the world works. I'm also very optimistic because all of the things that we're fighting for and gun control, just imagine if you're a young person now and you're doing uh, active shooter drills. Just imagine if when your parents send you off to school, they're frightened to death, they're afraid somebody's going to come on campus with a gun and kill you. Now, remember, these are the same young people who have the power to make changes about drug law. As a parent, you begin to think differently. And I really believe that this generation will probably put in place the strongest gun laws we have ever seen because of their own experiences. It's not going to go the other way. It's going to move forward. So we're at a time now where I'm telling you, sometimes I almost get depressed because people are so evil. And people with power, the Supreme Court, look at it. This is bad as the Dred Scott decision court. You know, we're almost looking at the same Plessy versus Ferry, all of that. You know, we're looking at a court being redesigned to look the way it did in the past so they can bring the past back. 
But you can't go back because young people come into this. People are born every day. And on a college campus, they get younger and younger. And with them, they don't bring with them all of the baggage and evil and stuff that we've had. At least they've not had it for as long as we have. So they come to a different place with a different background. And when you hear, I remember Obama used to say that this generation of young people is the least prejudiced or racist of any group of people that we've had in this country. And it has everything to do with the opportunity to be able to engage outside of your little tiny environment. As an older person, my job is to make certain that we keep them safe. I want them to push forward. But when I, when I put the stop down, it's like, no, I want you to live. Let's let's go around the corner and come to it, you know, to get that done. I, I see myself not. It's not a gatekeeper. It is a protector of sort, but not a protector to the point that you um, destroy, um, destroy progress. Speaking as a person who was expelled from college for demonstrating, and guess what? Uh, a, a plea came to my parents to send me back. You know why? Because when I left, the whole city of New Orleans left. When mm-hmm. other students left, their whole communities left. So they kicked us out, but they needed us to keep the school running. So I understand, you know, rebelling, and I've been that way all my life. I just want to make certain that our children can live. I want them to live to fight another day, if you understand what I'm saying. But fight, they must. And um, if they don't fight, we're doomed. Mm. And um, That's just how I'm feeling today. Tomorrow, I would probably have a completely different speech for you. But this is what I'm feeling at the moment. And I want to be hopeful. If I were not hopeful, I would just give up. If I thought that all of this were for naught, that white supremacy, look at the crowds. They're mostly all white men. And a few scared younger white men. And we've seen how that works out when one got caught. He was begging people to leave him alone. He was afraid to death of the kind of pushback that he got. So many of these people are cowards. They're frightened and they know they're losing. We just have to make certain that they lose through young, the actions of young people. Mm. That's where I am today. Thank you for that. Dr. Willard, last word. Well, uh, thanks for the last word. Uh, uh, I've uh, spent uh, majority of my uh, adult life uh, teaching young people. Uh, the only job I've really ever had was uh, a college professor and uh, no regrets. Uh, as Dr. Wright said, young people coming in, idealistic, great ideas, a lot of energy, and you're trying to give them as much information as you can and trying to guide them, mentor them. And I, you know, I tell people I have students who have students who have students uh, who do this work now. That's like three generations. <laughs> so that means that means you've been around a long time. And so the idea is that uh, this work is hard. When you work for justice, it's not easy. If it was easy, you'd have more people doing it. So you have to refuel, uh, and hopefully you you refuel uh, refuel with uh, green energy. Uh, you have to 
you know, go back and and uh, 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 get get uh, renewed uh, and and come back and and fight harder. Uh, I've seen over these last forty plus years, folks get burned out, uh, get bought out, and 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 just and and sometimes they just give up and say, "Oh, you can't do that." Uh, and but again, but there are some of us who have stayed the course and we've made. You know, made those uh, those uh, hard uh, decisions to stay with it and fight and bring in others like minded uh, from the from the stay with it tribe, not the give up tribe, not the look the other way tribe, but 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 the tribe that's going to, you know, take us across the finish line. That's uh, that's that gives me hope. And there are a lot of young people out there who are built that way. This is not for everybody. But for those who choose this as a, a cause, a mission, uh, uh, then we welcome them. And as, a, as an elder, as a mentor, uh, I, I, welcome, uh, I welcome working with young people, intergenerational, and to assist and support. And 75% and, uh, uh, of my work, and eighty percent of the books that I've written, eighteen books that I've written over these forty years, were 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 um, was done at an HBCU. Mm. You know, I worked at the white big white schools, and I taught you know, all kinds of students. But my goal was to return back to my roots. I attended Alabama A and M University and Atlanta University. My PhD was from Iowa State University, but I wanted to come back to an HBCU and contribute and give back because. Right. That gave me the foundation, and I think it's important that uh, to understand that. And and now with the the Bullard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice at Texas Southern University in Houston, the first university, I mean the the first job I got out of graduate school was at DSU in Houston. And so uh, I want to give back. And 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 again, uh, this center will be a legacy uh, for environmental justice. Uh, it just happened to be named after me. That, that's just accidental, I guess. But the fact is that we want to be the go-to go place at a university, uh, the first call. Who gets the call to talk, work on environmental justice, climate justice, energy justice, racial justice, uh, and, and authentic relationships, partnerships with our communities? And there are a lot of universities doing this work. They're, all of them are not created equal. Some are in it for just the money, the grant, chasing dollars. But we're in it. Uh, uh, running for justice and change, transformative change. That's that's what sets uh, a Dillard, uh, a Xavier, a Grambling, or an Alabama A and M, or or Atlanta University, or Texas Southern from some of the other schools. We are we are vested in fighting for justice and 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 liberation and reparation. We talk about reparation in environmental communities that's been poisoned. The property value has been devalued. The quality of life has been devalued. We want to make those communities whole. We want to make sure that those communities are repaired and made whole. And the, and the fancy word for repairing and make whole is re- just have to be reparation. It scares a lot of people, but, but it is in reality the word. And we have to fight for that. And it's not going to be given to us because, because nothing has ever been given to us. We always had to earn, in many cases, over-earn. And in many cases, we're, we have never been paid 
of what we are owed. That's what we have to fight for. We, I mean, we, we can't just accept a half a loaf when others are getting a full loaf. In other cases, in many cases, a loaf and a half, our half. So that's what we have to fight for. And young people have to understand that that's a fight that's worth fighting. Hmm. Well, I have a feeling this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation. And I thank you, Dr. Wright and Dr. Bullard, for all you've done and for this conversation as we all fight to stop petrochemicals. Thank you so much. And God bless. Thanks, God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. You know.